I uh, don't know if you've been out, uh, out and about this summer at all. Maybe you've been on some outings um, across Essex or further afield. Uh, Any time, though, I always, uh, when every time I leave Southend, I always vow never to do it again because uh, it's so difficult getting out of Southend. Have you ever found that? Uh, as soon as you get in the car and you start to leave, you hit traffic immediately. Like, That's it. I'm never going anywhere ever again. And the same happens when you come back in, doesn't it? When you've gone off on your outing, you're tired, you've been a long day, you're coming along the 127 or the A13, then you hit Rayleigh and you say, I should never have gone. Stuck in traffic again. It's always the slowest part of the journey is South End. John's Gospel <laughs> is a little bit like coming back to South End, uh, but in a much better way. Uh, John's Gospel, um, as we're halfway through, really slows down now as it comes to the important bits, as it's coming home. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? John's Gospel, from the first 11 chapters, has gone from, has whizzed through history from the beginning of time when, before the world even began, when the word of God, Jesus, was with the Father, all the way through to the incarnation of Jesus when he was born in Bethlehem, all the way through his 30 years, all the way through his three years of ministry, and suddenly halfway through the gospel, as it's coming to the most important parts, as it's coming home, it all dramatically slows down. And the second half of John's gospel is spent on only just a few days of Jesus' life. Isn't that interesting? That shows us, John is trying to show us, that these next 10 chapters are of vital importance. Jesus does more in his last three or four days of his life than has happened in all the history of the universe. That's an incredible thing. Jesus has just been to uh, raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, if you remember that story. And it's causing a, a big commotion in Jerusalem. And he's coming to Jerusalem for the final time, the last Passover, before he's crucified. So we're in the last week of his life. Now, interestingly, this miracle that Jesus does of Lazarus is causing a big stir for good and for ill. For good, because many, after witnessing, do you see verse 1, verse 45? Many Jews who witnessed this miracle believed in Jesus. That's great, isn't it? Many Jews saw the miracle and many believed. But look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Not in a good way, but trying to dob Jesus in. That's amazing, isn't it? You'd think that everyone who witnesses the miracle of raising of Lazarus would believe. Wouldn't you think that? Wow, Jesus just rose some from the dead. We all believe now. But this Gospel of John, this part of the story reminds us that not everyone does. Just to pause there for a moment. That just shows us that the problem of the human heart, the problem of the human condition is not just believing things intellectually, because everyone believed and saw that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It just shows us actually the problem with the human condition is not necessarily our minds, but our hearts. Because there's something wrong, isn't there? If people can see that Jesus must be the Lord's Messiah, but yet still don't want him to be. 
That's interesting, isn't it? Well, Jesus starts to get into trouble from this point on. Some go back to the religious leaders to report what Jesus has been doing. And the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders of the day, they call a council. Did you see that? It's called the Sanhedrin. It's kind of like the the Jewish ruling council that all the, uh, the leaders get together and they decide all the important matters of faith and, uh, and the nation and, and the religiously, uh, what's going on religiously. And they call a council to discuss what they ought to do with Jesus. And we come to this incredible moment where the high priest, who's like the, the bigwig, the, 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 the highest person in the Jewish nation uh, at that point, other than the king, Caiaphas, he speaks an incredible prophecy incredible prophecy. Did you see that in verse 49? Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And then literally it says in verse 51 that he prophesied this. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now, this is fascinating, isn't it? The high priest gives a prophecy that Jesus must die for the nation. (coughs) But incredibly, he interprets and understands the prophecy wrong. He thinks that the prophecy means if we kill Jesus, we will save our nation from Roman rule, from being destroyed by the Romans. And so they plot to kill Jesus, to preserve what's important to them. It's incredible that he got his own prophecy wrong or interpreted it wrong. Why did he? Because John's gospel's been clear, isn't it? We're expecting the Messiah to come, the Lamb of God, who would die for the sins of the world. Even the high priest has prophesied that he must die. But why do they get it wrong? Well, because the religious leaders of that time, and many of the Jews of that time, they've made a calculation in their minds. Their priority is not necessarily about following Jesus and seeing what God is doing through him, but their priority is keeping the establishment just as it is for themselves. They've made a calculation that Jesus has come along and he's rocking the boat. Do you know what I mean by rocking the boat? That he's upsetting the status quo, that he's actually even threatening the existence of God's people. How's he doing that? Well, if you remember, the uh, Jewish nation at this time is under occupation by the Romans, and the Romans have allowed the Jewish people to have expressed their own religion, to have freedom of worship, and they have allowed some of the Jewish leaders to maintain their positions of power, to conduct their affairs, but all under Roman rule. But of course, the Romans were very um, 
notorious that if some movement became too popular or some other kind of movement happened that could threaten Roman occupation, they would put it down. And they would crush it before it could get anywhere. So the Jewish leaders are worried that Jesus is gaining a following that could result in them losing what's precious to them, the power and the authority and the ability to worship as a Jewish nation. Do you see how Jesus is rocking the boat? They're more concerned with keeping the little that they have under the Romans than risking it all and losing everything by following and allowing Jesus to gain a following. He's rocking the boat. And so they make a calculation in their heads. Better for one man to die than the boat sink. Now that's, that's actually quite a logical calculation, isn't it? We all make those kinds of decisions in our lives all the time, don't we? Better that we sacrifice one thing than the whole thing go under. Does that make sense? I couldn't quite think of an everyday example that we might do that. I don't know if you've been in a boat recently. <laughs> And maybe you've got someone who's sitting there mucking about and rocking the boat. And you think, look, let's just chuck him in. (laughs) We've got too many precious people in here. He should get it. One person rocking the boat. Better that we get rid of him and save everyone. So even they're making a calculation saying, possibly this is even what God wants. Because God loves his people, doesn't he? He's protecting his people. We've got to safeguard God's people. We've got to keep the status quo. Better the little we have under the Romans than risk it all. God would approve of this decision. Even if Jesus is a righteous guy, even though he might be um, anointed by God, God would understand, wouldn't he, to keep things the way they are. So they amazingly plot to kill him. You know, many people reject Jesus in their lives because they're worried that he will rock the boat. In fact, there's probably a part of each one of us that secretly suspects if I did give more of my life to Jesus, he might rock the boat of my life. And I'm not quite comfortable with that. Many people, well, for starters, many people around the world who live in different places and contexts to us really would lose a lot if they gave their lives to Jesus. Maybe the government would oppose them. Maybe family would reject them, all those sorts of things. But even for us here where we are today, there are things in our life, I bet you think, I know Jesus might have his finger on this in my life. And if I take him too seriously, he might rock the boat. And I kind of like the boat the way I've got it. Or at least I'm sailing in a particular direction. I've got my destination in mind. And if I let Jesus in the boat too much, he might rock it or change direction or whatever. So maybe better to not let him in. So many people don't follow Jesus because of that. They don't want to give up their weekend. (laughs) They don't want to risk a relationship. They don't want to let go of certain things that they cherish close to them. We all have those things. So we might look at the religious leaders and think, that's crazy. And isn't it amazing that it's the religious leaders, the ones who you would think would embrace Jesus the most, 
are the ones that are worried about the boat being rocked. You know, that can happen in church too. We like church just the way we've got it. We've spent years getting it the way we want it. The Church of England spent hundreds of years getting it the way they want it. Don't rock the boat. Keep it the same. Jesus might be doing a new thing, but never mind all that. Got to keep it just the way we've got it for now, because it's safer. Don't rock the boat, Jesus. They make a calculated decision. And many of us make those kinds of decisions because, like I said, remember, it's not a head thing. It's often a heart thing. But, of course, it backfires. It backfires on the religious leaders big time. You might think by keeping Jesus at arm's length or rejecting that you're keeping the boat steady. But in the end, actually, you lose it and you sink anyway. Do you remember the... um, cartoon when you were younger, probably showing my age now, there was one called um, The Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. Remember that one? The Roadrunner, the Mimi. And the, the Roadrunner runs really quick, doesn't he? And the Coyote, who's starving, hungry all the time, wants to uh, kill the Coyote, uh, the, the, the Roadrunner and eat it. Um, and he comes up with schemes and plots and ideas to uh, catch the Roadrunner. And every time he tries to do it, or gets this close to it, it always backfires and he ends up being trapped or the rock falls on his own head or he gets trapped in his own trap. Do you remember that? Yeah. Humorous as that is, the Bible says God cannot be mocked. God's purposes and his plans, though you may not like them or agree with them, If you resist them or try to thwart them, in the end you might lose the very thing you were trying to save. It's really important that. How did that happen for the Pharisees? Well, it says here in verse uh, 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and nation. They were worried about keeping the temple and the nation. 35 years or so from that moment on in the history of the Jewish nation, AD 70, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And so was all of Jerusalem. And the Jewish nation was scattered. Only 35 years on from that, the very thing they were trying to protect was eventually taken away from them anyway. And Jesus prophesied that himself. In Matthew 24, uh, he's passing by, Jesus is passing by the temple with his disciples and he says, do you see this temple? And he says, do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. You see, we might think we're saving our boats, if you like, and protecting our lives because we're worried that God might do something or Jesus might do something in our lives and we're keeping it safe or we're making plans of our own and got our own agendas and our life schemes and our plans and our calculations. And we hold on tight to the things that we want and we don't want the boat rocked. The very things that we're trying to hold on to might be taken anyway. 
And it would have been better for us just to follow and trust Jesus with everything we have than to keep him at arm's length. They lost the very thing that they were trying to protect. But the irony of this passage, of course, as well, is that Caiaphas, he did actually prophesy the truth. Not the way that the Jewish leaders thought the prophecy was going to work out, but it was in fact actually the truth of the gospel that God had been planning before the world even began. Let's just look at it again. What does Caiaphas say? Verse 50. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. That's true. That's true. It is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. God sees that. And he knows that. And you could extend that to the whole world. God saw the whole world and he said, it's better that my precious and one and only son die than the whole world perish. That's true. The Pharisees don't want Jesus to rock the boat. So they throw him over to save the ship. And in the end, that's what they do. And ironically, in the end, that is what saves the nation. And not only the nation, but the whole world. See, the world is not, the boat, the world is not rocking and shaking and perishing because of Jesus. That's where they get it wrong. It's not Jesus that's rocking the boat. It's the sins of the world. It's the sins of the world. It's you and me. We are rocking the boat. We are laden down with so much iniquity and wrongdoing and sin and selfishness, like a ship that is heavy, way overladen with cargo. We've accumulated an incredible weight that the world cannot bear. The world can, and we know the world can't. It is literally cracking at the seams under the weight of sin and human ridiculousness that the boat is rocking it's not Jesus rocking the boat and so what does Jesus do God says and Jesus say it's better that I take up all this burden all this stuff you've accumulated on the boat that's rocking it and sinking it I'll pick it all up I will carry it I will literally hold it in myself on the broad shoulders of God's son and he will jump over the side and take it all with him down to the bottom of the abyss where it can do no harm anymore. And that's what he's doing. From this moment in John's gospel, that's what he's about to do. The boat is rocking and he says, it is better for you to throw me over the side with all the burdens and cargo and sin and all of that and let it sink to the bottom. Do you remember the story of Jonah and the whale? You remember? The boat was rocking in Jonah's day because of Jonah's sin. He was rebelling against God. So they threw him over the side and the storm was eased. That's pointing to Jesus, isn't it? Not because of Jesus' sin like Jonah's, 
but because of the sins of all the people. And so he goes in. It is better for one man to die than for the whole boat to sink and for the whole world to perish and the nation of Israel. It's a curious passage, isn't it? Because in them rejecting Jesus, they actually fulfill all God's purposes. But here's the key thing. It's how you approach the sacrifice of Jesus that matters most. We could either be those that go, yes, I want to get rid of you, Jesus. I don't want you in my life. You're rocking my boat. You're rocking our country. You're rocking everything. You're making, you know, the church and the gospel and the Bible. We don't want it. Or I don't want you really in my life, Jesus. I don't really want you. I want what you can give me, but I don't really want you. You're rocking my boat. Then yes, we crucify Christ and fulfill God's purposes, but we are cast out and we lose everything. Or we approach Jesus and say, yes, we must sacrifice you. We must allow you, Jesus, to die. You must die for me, and I accept that. And I believe in that, and I treasure that. Not because I want to gain the world, but because I want to gain you. You see, the others sacrificed Jesus because they wanted to gain the world, and so lost everything. We sacrificed Jesus as believers, or allow him to sacrifice himself for us, not to gain the world, who gives a hoot, but to gain him. Him. He is the reward. He is the life. He is everything. I want him in my boat. I want him in my life. I don't need anything else. John's gospel is going to show that. These next few chapters, who's with him? Who's going to let go of everything for him? Who's going to stand against him? But either way, God's purposes and plans will come about. They will come about. Amen to that. Let's pray.